my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. My name is Ariel. I moved to the U.S. at 19. I spoke no English, and I struggled finding job opportunities. Everything I have, I owe to the Adult Literacy Center and getting my high school diploma at age 22. It was an honor helping you achieve your greatness. Now you're helping others achieve theirs. It inspires me. When you graduate, they graduate. Find free and supportive adult education centers near you at finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. You're listening to Modern Rules, a production of MSNBC and iHeartRadio. I don't understand how his mother could have allowed him to have all that access uh, to firearms, and I don't understand how his mother didn't get him help. I don't think I hate them, but um, I've not forgiven them. In order for me to move forward, I could not allow bitterness and unforgiveness to poison me. Because if I did, that meant that I was giving someone else control over my life. When I was younger, definitely when it came to my career, I had very sharp elbows. Time and experience have changed that. They've smoothed them out, I like to think. And today, I do not hold the grudges that I used to. So maybe it is true that a little bit of age, experience, some pain have given me some perspective on how other people think and what other people do. And today, somehow that experience has made it easier for me to understand why people do the things they do, even hurtful things, and I try to put myself in their shoes and cut them some slack. But the things I have to forgive in other people, or even forgive in myself, are small if I compare them to the entirety of what people experience in their whole lives. So the question I wanna answer Are there things, are there acts that are simply too terrible to forgive? Or is forgiving the truly terrible thing the way you liberate yourself from the power that other person is holding over you? I'm Stephanie Rule, MSNBC anchor and NBC News correspondent, and this is Modern Rules. season of Modern Rules, I'm going to be spending time unpacking the hairiest conversations from privilege to political correctness to try and figure out how we can navigate this changing world and break through to actually talk with 
and learn from the people who disagree with us and maybe, just maybe, learn something along the way. Today on Modern Rules, we're talking about forgiveness. Are people's worst actions truly fueled by hate? Do they do something terrible because they're a terrible person? Or do people do bad things because they're hopeless? If we all had everything we needed, is it possible that we wouldn't do anything terrible, anything that required forgiveness? Is it possible that there really are no bad people? There's just bad mindsets and bad situations that drive us into desperate things. That's coming up on Modern Rules with guests Nicole Hockley and Alice Johnson. Nicole Hockley lost her son Dylan in the Sandy Hook massacre. To say it was devastating for her and for so many others really doesn't capture the depth of their loss. But Nicole's reaction almost immediately was to focus on making a difference herself doing what she could do to keep other parents from having that same awful experience. So she channeled her grief and her anger into creating a positive impact through a remarkable organization, the Sandy Hook Promise. You know, it's interesting to talk to Nicole about forgiveness because she doesn't sugarcoat things. She has got powerful feelings. Forgiveness is not something that comes easily. What's amazing to me really is your message and your work and your programs. In all of our interactions, you're not angry. Every time I'm with you, I can feel your open heart. Can you help me understand your journey and how you got here? Well, I do want to say I do actually have a lot of anger um, in me. <laughs> I just um, maybe control it better because I don't think it's productive. And I think it can get in the way of progress. And that's really what's most important to me. My anger isn't going to produce results. Talking to people, listening to people, trying to find that common ground. You know, I'm absolutely obsessed with impact and trying to make a difference in saving a life. And that means my personal feelings, thoughts, or agendas come second place. So you can be angry or you can be unable to forgive. And at the same time, you can progress? I have to. Yeah, I have to because that is. That's our mission. It's not about me. Um, it's not about my family. It's about what's the greater good. And that means putting yourself aside and focused. You know, we have a saying in our office, mission before me. And that's what we live every single day. You don't come there for yourself. You don't work at Sandy Hook Promise for yourself. You don't support it for yourself. You support it for the mission to keep kids safe and to stop gun violence. Can you tell me about your path since 2014? Oh, golly. Completely surreal. None of this bears any resemblance uh, to my life beforehand. That's for sure. I'm still figuring out who I am and, and who I'm evolving into. What was your life before? Uh, I was a marketing and communications director for a healthcare company. Uh, so I know a lot about financial services. I could bore your ears off of on annuities and investments that I certainly didn't know anything about social activism. Uh, I had never even been to D.C., before I started lobbying Congress. I was also just a mom trying to make ends meet and look after my two boys. They were my priorities. And it was a simple life and a very happy life. I was one of those people that, it sounds so stupid to say, but it's true. I used to think I would just like burst sometimes because I, I just had so much joy in me. And I think I'm a lot more, I don't know, grounded or solid or balanced now. How and when did you become productive? Did you go from devastation, grief, paralysis? How does the process work? 
Well, I think the process is totally different for each person. So I'm, I'm in no way a typical uh, person. Um, I started talking about change at Dylan's funeral, which was a week after the shooting. And, and I was very honest at his memorial service that I had no idea what changes were going to come, but that I intended to be part of it uh, for Dylan and for whoever else wanted to be part of that as well, um, that something had to be done so that other parents wouldn't be standing in my shoes. The first year, we did what, what everyone does after a mass shooting. We focused on policy. We spent a lot of time in D.C., met some amazing people, met some not-so-amazing people who, who I don't name as well, but spent a lot of time just trying to lobby for the simple things, the low-hanging fruit, background checks. And after that failed in April 2013, that's when we took a hard look at each other and said, if we've done all that we can around the simple things and that hasn't passed, then we're, we're doing this the wrong way. So we then went dark for about 12, 18 months while we studied hard. I spent time with mental health experts, gun safety experts, academics, social change experts, law enforcement, absorbing books still trying to process grief at the same time. And then after doing all of this study for a year, year and a half, that's when we started to formulate a new way to try to find the common ground. Because we know that, you know, we do have a lot of divisive issues in this country, but we have managed to find the way forward on so many of them. So, you know, what are those levers that you can pull to create social change? And that's when we started focusing on things other than just policy, but how do you get people engaged in an issue? How do you make it personal to them? How do you change them and, and train them on how to be an act till it just becomes normal? And that's how you get real behavioral change, which leads to social change. And then policy and politics are a lot easier to follow. Gun control seems to be one of the most divided, divisive issues, but you actually go to towns, go to schools, go to people's homes. Are we that divided? Not really. It depends on how you frame the conversation, because I think parents or anyone with children in their lives, they will do anything to protect that child. For some people, that means owning firearms. For some people, that means ensuring that there are no firearms around. But there's also this vast swathe in the middle that are like, I really don't care about guns or, you know, whether you have guns or don't have guns. I just want to keep my kids safe. Give me the right tools to be able to do that. And when you start the conversation from that perspective and, and actually don't even take the word gun into it, you can make a lot more progress and build relationships and trust and then have a conversation about where guns and firearms fit into this equation if they do at all. How do you keep hope? What else would I do? There is hope. Anyway, it, these shootings are still happening every day, and they all bring me to my knees. Um, I think you've seen me very soon after some shootings, and you've seen me lose control completely, um, which is not something I do in public. But it also just renews my, my commitment to making this happen. Why I continue to be hopeful is because although we hear so much about the shootings that do occur, I'm also hearing about the shootings that don't occur. I'm hearing about the towns that you're never going to profile on any news show because the school shooting didn't happen. The suicide didn't happen. And, and that's, that's where I'm hopeful because I know it's happening and I know it's changing. Are there times, though, when you lose hope? When you and I sit across from each other, it's always after another shooting. Mm -hmm. How do you find the will 
to say things are getting better? How do you find, how are you able to be optimistic through this? How come anger doesn't overcome you? Well, if anger overcomes me, then, then the Sandy Hook shooter won. And I can't let that happen because there's a greater duty here to protect my surviving son and build a good, safe future for him as well as for others. I don't know whether I'm just the eternal optimist or not, but I do believe that, you know, when, when I go around the country and talking to schools, talking to parents, talking to politicians even, there is a will to deliver a safer future. It's the how that sometimes gets in the way. It's the how that people have that struggle to find the ways forward. And it, if we can find the right ways to engage people and give them the tools, I know we're making a difference. So why wouldn't I be? hopeful and optimistic. The change is coming. It's, it's, it's getting through the how and then deciding the when. Hold on a second, because we have so much more to talk about. We'll be right back after a quick break. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. My simple solution to the problem was remove people from the scene and help them feel safer. In response to attacks against Asian Americans, Maddie Park raised over $250,000 to donate cab rides to the Asian community. There is so much more work to be done. We really need to come together and tackle this issue as a community. Support the Asian community. Learn how at lovehasnolabels.com. Brought to you by Love Has No Labels and the Ad Council. Hey, it's Zuko and Kayla from The Wake Up Call. Enjoy your podcast, but when you're done, don't forget about us. We have a radio show. We try to bring a smile to your face every morning. We also talk to some of the hottest country stars of today, and we like to share some good news with That's What I Like. Because Lord knows that's hard to find. When you're done podcasting your podcast, listen to us at 92.3 WCOL. Set your preset on your radio right now, and don't forget you can listen to us online on the iHeartRadio app. Welcome back to Modern Rules. I asked you not long ago if the gun manufacturer, if anyone from the company ever reached out to you to apologize. Yeah, no. (laughs) How could that be? I don't know. I would guess because they would feel if they apologize that they'd be admitting some form of guilt. And they can't do that. There's a difference between compassion, though. And I think that was what's lacking there. On the other side... Can you speak about the last few years and the support that has built around you from people that you didn't know or the strength of Sandy Hook Promise? Has, it, yeah. has, has, has the power of your reach surprised you? Yes and no. Uh, on the yes side, I mean, my house was filled with 
letters and items from people around the, around the world who just wanted to outreach and let me and my husband know that they were sorry for our loss. And that's amazing. And that's something that I've cataloged for Jake because I want him to always remember that there's a lot of good in the world and that people really do care and help each other. My personal circle of friends um, grew massively and then shrunk massively. Um, Why shrunk? It was too hard for people? I definitely make some people uncomfortable. I am not your, um, I am not the dinner party guest that you want to invite. What do you mean? What do you mean? People don't know where to look sometimes. Uh, there, there are some people that, you know, for some people I'm, I'm a parent's worst nightmare because I've lost my child in a way that they cannot wrap their heads around and don't want to face that even idea, that possibility that it could have been them. And I get it. And, and that can be awkward because people don't know what to say. They don't know how to act. Um, they want to hug me, which I always let them. But then it's like, where do you go from there? Even meeting people for the first time now in social occasions. It's like normally if you're going out with someone, yeah, they'll be like, oh, and what do you do for a living? They know who I am beforehand. So there's no normal conversation. And they either want to talk about Dylan or you could go hours and there's no even ask about. So do you have children? So is that hard for you to parent another child? Because your identity is so tied yeah. to Dylan and Sandy Hook. It is. But what I make sure with Jake is that my identity, my identity publicly might be very focused on Dylan, but privately it is absolutely balanced between Dylan and Jake. When I'm with Jake, it's, I'm 100% present uh, for him and his needs. And... You know, the house doesn't have tons of just photos of Dylan. And I've spoken to other parents who have lost children in gun violence and seen the same things, the paintings, the pictures all over the house. And I have to remind them, don't forget about your surviving child as well. Because if you make your life solely about the one who died, what, what message are you inadvertently giving to the one who survived? Are you ever just pissed? Are you ever angry at other people? mothers, at other families, at, at random events, because this didn't happen to them? Never, never angry because it didn't happen to them. No, never, ever, ever. I get angry sometimes. And, you know, I work to control it. If sometimes if it's just really awkward, I get angry that I'm in this situation in the first place. I get angry that I don't have a normal life anymore. I get angry that, you know, even if I'm grocery shopping, I don't look around at the people around me because sometimes I just, you know, I don't want to be known. <laughs> I just want to be me. I got angry when, you know, after my divorce, trying to then start dating again. And it's even like, you know, do you tell someone who you are or, or do you not? And it's that awkward conversation. I mean, try dating when you're a Sandy Hook parent. It's not exactly your, your it's not. How a great did you do it? <laughs> Went on a lot, a lot, a lot of first dates that never became <laughs> second dates <laughs> is the truth. Um, and then one guy stuck and he's like, why on earth are you with me? And I'm like, because you're, you're the normal in my life. <laughs> wow. And he is, he's a sweetheart. Did you want to leave Newtown? Because you yeah. do drive by the same school. You do go to the same grocery store. Yeah. So Ian and I, Dylan's dad, Dylan and Jake's dad, Right after the shooting, we had thought about going back to England, where, where we'd been living. And all of our friends and family there were like, just come back. What are you doing in this crazy place that this could happen? And it was tempting, but at the same time, even then, early on, we knew we had chosen Newtown for a reason. 
and you can't escape. You can't run away because it's still, it's still with you wherever you go. And um, I knew I had a job to do. And the job is here in America. It's here in Newtown. How much time do you devote to being angry at the person who did this? Not as much anymore. I won't lie. I still have anger. Do you um, hate him? Hate is a really strong word. Um, he's dead, so there's nothing I can do about that. Do you hate his mother? I don't understand how his mother could have allowed him to have all that access uh, to firearms, and I don't understand how his mother didn't get him help. Um, I, I don't think I hate them, but um, I've not forgiven them. But you don't need to forgive them to move on. I don't think so. I know some people do, and I respect, you know, different forms of faith um, that are allowed, you know, that, that they have that within them to do that. Uh, I'm still angry at God, <laughs> and um, I'm not in a space of forgiveness because I think what was done is unforgivable. Um, how can, how, I don't know how I can forgive someone who made a choice um, to take firearms to a school and kill innocents in that way. We're going to be right back after a quick break. Check the back seat. Check the back seat. Come here. Check the back seat. Gets in your head, right? Good. Because every year, dozens of children are forgotten in the backseat of a car by a parent or caregiver. All never thought it could happen to them. But with changes in routines, distractions, or a sleeping child, it can happen to anyone. Parked cars get hot fast and can be deadly. So get it in your head. Check the backseat. A message from NHTSA and the Ad Council. It's the Breakfast Club, the world's most dangerous morning show. Hey! Angela E is kind of like the big sister that always pokes <laughs> you in the forehead. That's not how it goes? That's not how anything goes. Yemi's really like a robot. One of the best DJs ever. Believe that. Charlamagne is the wild card. And I'm about to give somebody the credit they deserve for being stupid. I know, that's right. <laughs> what is wrong with you? <laughs> Listen to The Breakfast Club weekday mornings from 6 to 10 on 106.7 The Beat. Columbus is real hip-hop and R&B. Welcome back to Modern Rules. Alice Johnson was serving a life sentence in prison when none other than Kim Kardashian took her story to the president and convinced him to grant Alice a pardon. She had already been in prison for over 20 years. Alice's outlook on life, shaped by her experience behind bars, is surprising, and I think it's inspiring. As she tells it, forgiveness is a kind of freedom, at least for her. I had a chance to read your book. I think lots of people know what's happened to you, but they don't know what led you here. So if you wouldn't mind, can you give us your story? Yes. There was, there was a sequence of events that really led to me making the terrible mistake to get involved in criminal activities. I'd lost my job uh, 10 years with FedEx. I was taking care of five children as a single mother totally without any help, and bills were piling up. I was not making really good decisions. Sometimes when you're desperate, you do things that if you were to think about it later on, you wouldn't do them. If I could go back in time and talk to myself, I would definitely tell myself, run. Don't walk, but run from anything that looks illegal. 
an offer was made to me to become involved in a drug conspiracy. My role would be to pass along telephone messages. I was the go-between. And I did that. I made that terrible, terrible decision to do that. I was arrested in what became a drug sting, and I made the decision to go to trial. I was offered three to five years, but decided from the advice of my attorney, my family scraped together the money to pay uh, who we thought was a very uh, seasoned attorney, and he told me that I had a very good case because they had not gotten me with any drugs or any money. And plus, my financial condition did not show uh, a person who could fit the description of a drug queen pen or king pen. I was eventually, after the six-week trial, convicted of um, drug conspiracy by an 11-person jury. And as a first-time nonviolent offender, I was sentenced to life without parole, without the possibility of parole, because there is no parole in the federal system. After being incarcerated, I've just made some decisions that I'm not going to allow this to literally take my life. I was told the only way that I would leave prison would be as a corpse. But despite that, I still was not going to allow prison to define who I am as a person, as an individual. I did a lot of things, Stephanie, in prison. I sat with people who were in hospice care. I worked with uh, this first ever Special Olympics in prison. I continued to fight for my freedom through various motions, but everything was denied. I applied for clemency three times, and each time I was denied. But this very last time that I applied for clemency in 2018. Well, let me back up just a little bit. After fighting so hard, my family also was involved in fighting for my freedom. They did vigils outside the White House. My daughter started a petition on change.org that garnered over 270,000 signatures of people that were signing when they heard about my story, who was who were signing petitions for my freedom, my warden wrote a letter for my freedom, talking about the type of person that I was in prison. My captain at the prison, case manager, my employer. I had a lot of support from the political side. Also, three members of Congress wrote letters on my behalf. I had religious leaders, NAACP president of our chapter in DeSoto County, Mississippi, wrote a great letter asking uh, for my release, but somehow I was one that seemed to have just slipped through the cracks. When you were sentenced to prison, when you were convicted, do you think the eyes of the law consider those who have privilege and those who don't? The situation that you were in, right? My lawyer told me that I had a really good chance and that he would recommend that I go to trial even when the jury was hung and another offer was sent to me. He told me, I basically don't take it. I think we've got a really good chance of winning this. But the thing, Stephanie, is that I know ignorance is no excuse, but I never knew that a life sentence 
was even possible You know for what, me. Alice? Ignorance might not be an excuse, but that's why, because you didn't understand the situation, you hired a lawyer. And so you trusted that lawyer. Well, he still told me that uh, he was going to fight my case, and he felt that I had a good chance to win at appeal. He said that you probably won't spend more than 13 months. Finally, when he came to visit me, and Stephanie, this was this was a really strange thing about all of the things that took place with me and my attorney. It was almost like he was apologizing to me. I thought he was coming to visit to give me more hope that he was going to continue to fight because we had lost the appeal. Instead, he came to give me an apology to let me know that he would be that he would not represent me and he would do nothing else to help me and to do whatever I needed to do what to him. What a weird thing. Do you think he was sorry? I think he was sorry for I don't know. I you know, I've I've pondered this so many times uh during my incarceration, what was the meaning of what he said to me? But it was a look also that he gave me, Stephanie, an apologetic look of more than just doing a terrible job. Do you forgive him? Oh, yes. I have forgiven him a long time ago. Why? Not to forgive him. I don't know what was going on in his life, but I can tell you for my life, in order for me to move forward, I could not allow bitterness and unforgiveness to poison me because if I did, that meant that I was giving someone else control over my life. So I made the choice to forgive. You know, forgiveness, Stephanie, is not a feeling. It's a choice. I could make the choice to forgive and to forgive and forgive again until I felt like it, until the feeling came. But if the feeling didn't come, I still made the choice that I'm going to let this go, and I'm going to live life as well as I can, even in prison. When did you make that choice? How did you make that choice? Was it natural, or did it take a struggle? Did it take time? You must have been in shock. I was in shock, and I was angry. I was very angry because I felt betrayed. This is a person who I've entrusted with my very life, and I felt very much betrayed. But then I, re I realized what it was doing. I couldn't sleep. It was making me sick. It was literally making me sick to have those terrible, those thoughts of, of, of how bad he had done, he had, how bad he had treated me as a client, and what this had cost not only myself, but my family too. But then you have to realize that person that you don't forgive, they've gone on about their lives, and it's not them who's in bondage to unforgiveness, is you. So I let that go. I forgave the people who testified against me, but I was not going to give the people who testified against me. I was not going to give them that power over my life because I was giving them my life by not forgiving them. I was giving them power, control over whether I was happy, uh, whether I could continue on, whether I could make the next step, whether I could put one foot in front of the other to even just to, to go on with life. And so that would have been a life sentence. That bitterness, and I've called it a rottenness of the soul, and that is exactly what it is. When you walk around with hate in your heart and unforgiveness, it the effect upon you is is what 
you have to deal with. You've given someone moments of your life where you could maybe have joy in your life. But instead, you can't even find anything good about life because you're eaten up with bitterness and unforgiveness. And I refuse. I'm already sentenced to life. That would have been sentenced to death. Tell me what it's like in prison, because in theory, I would think all that bitterness and anger and rage that would fill a prison. There were quite a few people that had that rage and that bitterness and that anger. But as much as I could, I think people probably got tired of me talking to them about forgiveness because that is a message that I spread, that I that I was able to spread in prison too. And I've seen people lives renewed. I've seen smiles back on faces that had a perpetual frown on them. And I believe that unforgiveness also accounts for even sickness that we have in our bodies um, when you hold on to that. So what I did, Stephanie, for my little bit, my little piece that mm-hmm. I could do, I tried to to bring a different atmosphere wherever I went in prison. I tried to get women involved in things to take their minds off and to even use plays that I did to spread that message of forgiveness and pick up your life. You're not dead. As long as you have breath in your body, you can live, you have value, you can make a difference. And just being able to communicate that to to other women, to give them hope, because I had a lot of hope, and I still have a lot of hope. And hope is contagious. Smiles and laughter is contagious. And so is hatred, unforgiveness, and bitterness. It can be contagious. There is a weight of shame, and that shame comes, I think, when you don't forgive yourself for the things that you've done, if I felt that I had disappointed so many people. I disappointed myself too. So even even forgiving others, the last big obstacle was forgiving myself and shaking that shame off and holding my head up again and knowing that I can't change the past, but I sure can do something about the present and I can do something going forward into my future. So this is what I'm hearing about forgiveness. It does not come naturally. It is not an automatic. It is a choice. And in the case of Alice Johnson, the choice to forgive others is really about giving herself a better life, freeing herself. To not forgive would have been a life sentence of a different kind for her, possibly even worse than prison. This choice was about freedom for her, and Alice was able to get there. But for Nicole Hockley, forgiveness, that is not something she's ready for. Now, she's not consumed by bitterness. She's devoted to making real change. So what happened to her son, to her family, hopefully never happens to someone else. That is Nicole's mission. But forgiveness, forgiveness for the man who pulled the trigger, forgiveness for his mother who allowed him to have those guns, she is not ready for that. Not now. It is a choice. It's a deeply personal choice. That is what I learned from these two exceptional women. This has been our conversation on forgiveness. Thanks for listening, bringing an open mind, and helping me create modern rules.
Want more of this conversation? Go deeper and read this week's Modern Rules feature only on NBCNews.com slash better. That's it for today's episode. I'm your host, Stephanie Rule. A very, very special thanks to the extraordinary people who made this happen. My producers, Julie Brown, Samantha Ulin, and Ann Barak Audio. Michael Biet for booking and wrangling the amazing guests who joined us. Julian Weller for editing and Bill Plax, Michael Azar, and Jacopo Penzo for their recording expertise. Special thanks to Steve Licktag, Barbara Rabb, Jonathan Wald, Marie Dugo, Holly Traz, Nikki Etor, and Christina Everett. Our executive producers are Connell Byrne and Mangesh Hatigador. And of course, the men who brought us all together, chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia, Bob Pittman, and chairman of NBC News, Andy Lack. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Check the backseat. Check the backseat. Hi, come here. Check the back seat. Gets in your head, right? Good. Because every year, dozens of children are forgotten in the backseat of a car by a parent or caregiver. All never thought it could happen to them. But with changes in routines, distractions, or a sleeping child, it can happen to anyone. Parked cars get hot fast and can be deadly. So get it in your head. Check the back seat. A message from NHTSA and the Ad Council.